Um, so uh, I want to welcome uh, everybody uh, tonight. Wish everybody a happy holiday. Uh, and um, uh, welcome to my co-host, Melissa. And to our guest, uh, the mysterious Benden Weir, who is actually... <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, <I forgot>. okay. <laughs> who is actually... That is my... <laughs> uh, ex extra points for anybody who can name the novel that that's from. But um, our guest, uh, Terry Maggard, who's an um, instructor at SNHU, and I'm sure some of you have, have had the good fortune of uh, having him in your, in your class. That's right, Lila, all right. And, oh, wait, is, um, that, is, is it Lita? Is Lita Crossfield here? Or no, Lila? L-E-I. Oh, <laughs> hello. Sorry, apologies, I didn't have my yeah. glasses on. Apologies. <laughs> no worries. But you, but you nailed it. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, Terry is, is a, a phenomenal teacher and a, an amazing writer. Uh, he, his new uh, series, um, Backyard Starship, is out from Amazon or on Amazon now. I have been reading um, the first book in the series, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. It's a lot of fun, fast paced. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see the movie if it gets to that point, I'll tell you that. I mean, it's just great. So. Um, our, um, our topic tonight, which is a very loosely, you know, defined thing, but we want to talk a little bit about self-publishing, um, the opportunities, the pitfalls, um, and we are going to, um, you know, take questions. Um, but I thought before we did that, maybe we could just chat a little, um, with our, with, uh, Terry, um, and, uh, just talk a little bit about, how you got into self-publishing, um, whether that was your first and only route into, into publishing. Did you try traditional publishing and, and have a bad experience and decide to branch out in another way? How did you get to the place that you are today? Um, I think my, I would like to say that probably my story is pretty common. Um, I, I had an idea for a short story, it turned out to be a horror piece. And, um, and I looked at what it took to query and I made a list of like 50 agents I was going to query and about the ninth agent, I said, this is stupid because everybody had different, you know, requirements and things like that. And then to be very candid with you, my wife said, what's a higher percentage, 85 or 15? And she was thinking the long term, uh, right away, she's an extremely pragmatic individual. And, she, and I said, well, 85, obviously. And she said, why don't you build your own? career. And I, I did, that was the decision. I mean, I think it happened almost instantaneously uh, within say two weeks of deciding, yeah, I'd like to be a writer. And, and what was the, um, I mean, I know that now you, we, we've spoken uh, before and you're not just a self-published writer at this point. I mean, you, you're a business, you, you employ yeah. people, you've got a lot of stuff going on. So I'm curious about how you got to the point of deciding I w this is something I want to do for myself as a self-published writer to really becoming more almost like a, um, uh, I mean, in, in, the, in the phrase self-published writer, writer is, is, is obviously super important, but you are also a publisher, it seems like to yeah. me, that you have embraced yeah. both of those roles. So, so can you talk a little bit about like, how did you get to, to that stage? Um, organically. Um, in the sense that uh, 
we have 11 employees. There's 11 of us. We have a team. We have a core concept. And, uh, you know, I started writing and my business partner, who was my co-writer, it, he had a clear vision for what we were going to do. And we just sort of realized after we, we wrote this book series and he was, already, he was a hit writer in the sense that he had two successful series. And, um, and I started wondering, why are we farming out all of these parts? You know, why are we farming out elements of publishing when in reality, I was going to do everything anyway. And by elements of publishing, do you mean like your cover, the absolutely. editing process sure. and all of that sort of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll give you a great example. Jennifer Clark Sell is my editor and Jen and I have been, you know, we're a team. Um, I like to joke around and say that, you know, we're, there's no Terry without Jen in a sense. And so she, um, we've been working together seven years now. And I knew Jen stylistically understood me as a writer. I know that she understands I will never spell the word from <laughs> correctly the right way. I spell it form every time. And so, and then we found a cover artist who is a tremendous, you know, she's uh, from Romania. We've been working together for seven years now. And I started building these relationships. And I was like, you know, we have a company here just in everything but name. Yep. And so we just simply brought everything under the name and unified in a sense that we like each other, we like working with each other, and we understand the process together. So, and I'll tell you, Paul, you know as well as I do, shaving three, 10, 19 days off of the production time of a book, I mean, I can write fast because I am full of nerd ideas that have been percolating for five decades, but really the production is what slows down a lot of young or rather new writers. They'll, you hand in your book to the publisher and they say, great, here's five grand. And in two years, we'll get back to mm -hmm. you. Okay. So yeah. we decided we don't want to do that. We, we are going to take a different path and it's work. And you're, you, you publish uh, on a fairly um, accelerated schedule. I mean, you, you yeah. backyard starship, the first book came out, uh, or I don't remember exactly how long ago it was. It was a few months ago, though, right? Uh, like less than three. The summer. Less than three less months than three. ago. Okay. Yep. And the, and the second book in the series, I believe, is already out, and the third book might be out already. The or... third book is out. The fourth book comes out on January nineteenth, and the only reason there's a lag is because uh, we're all doing Christmas and New Year stuff, and um, uh, and really. You know, I like occasionally writing longer novels. Like I tend to write between 80 and 100K. And I said, I'm really going to make, I've got an idea. And we talked it over and we're doing an origin story so that when you get our novel, you're actually also getting a five to 10,000 word short story mm -hmm. that begins in the year 1918. Um, and, and we talked it over and said, yeah, I mean, I'm writing 20 books in this series. This wow. series is going to be 20 books. I already know where I'm going. I know what's happening, but I, I hesitate to tell people how to create because I'm just a, you know, a beach rat that hit it lucky with a series and the cultural zeitgeist rotated to where I am right now. With that being said, I don't know a lot of people that are successful publishing every 18 months. Right. Um, so. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you've got a co-writer, so you're able to, yeah. I mean, I, I assume that, that that is doubling your, your productivity, but even, even otherwise, you, you are an amazingly fast writer. And I, you know, I've read um, 
I guess I'm about halfway through Backyard Starship right now. And, you know, I've read a lot of, uh, a lot of work by writers who write very quickly and it shows, but, but your work yeah. does not seem like it's written quickly. It seems as though you are writing, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe you've written a, a number of novels uh, in the series already and are kind of releasing them on a, on a you know, a certain schedule. Um, no, this one, well, no, you, <laughs> in, uh, that is a great, uh, I like that methodology. I, I'm not against it. I think that a lot of people, like, I'll give you an example, and this is business, you know, shop talk. Um, we're going to sim pub, simultaneously pub, hardcover, ebook, and audio for a series that I've been chewing on for like a year. I've been thinking about it. And also one of the other things is, you know, you're a writer and, and you know, when you get the idea really the only physical limitation on how fast you can write is your time. Like yeah. you're, you know, like I know I sit down and I think in a, a actualized arc, like I know, I, I believe it was E.L. Doctorow who said headlights don't shine very far, but you can get home that way. Yeah. I know where my headlights are going. I know my destination. And I said to myself, okay, get over your pride and do an outline. So about mm -hmm. two and a half years ago, I started outlining, but it was, I'm glad I did because I was, I changed eye color in characters. I changed the gender of a character. I forgot that people were dead. You know, I forgot that, things like that. This has changed the dynamic of how good I am as a writer in the sense uh -huh. that I don't miss details and it, and it saves time in editing. Why, why was that a matter of pride? Well, because I was a, I was a, furious pantser. I said, I've got this entire series in my skull. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, I can quote entire, you know, like Anne McCaffrey, I can quote most of, you know, I re remember them almost like religious texts, things right. I started reading, but I realized that regarding my own material, a outline helps me be more accurate. It helps me with the fullness of the story um, as well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, George, R. R. I'll give you an example of something George R. R. Martin did that I have to, I, I think I read this back in the early 80s. He wrote a novel called Windhaven. He borrowed, he stole from his own material of Windhaven to create part of A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm -hmm. And to me, I, that tells me that that's a guy who has got so many pages of material that he said, let's use this and use this. And I am not above that because I absolutely think that great ideas resonate. But I do know that for me, outlining was one of the best things I ever did from a business standpoint. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, that's something that we try to teach our students here at, uh, at yep. the, in the MFA, that not just the utility of, of, um, of outlining, but also the practical ways of doing it. Um, and I have to say, I've, it wasn't until I started teaching writing that I began to more assiduously outline my own work. Because I, I, I thought I knew a lot about writing until I started to teach it. And then I realized yeah. I hardly know anything about writing. <laughs> no, and I, I started know. learning more about writing. And then it occurred to me one day, gosh, why don't I actually try to do some of this stuff that I'm <laughs> telling my students to do? Why don't I try to do it myself? And it made a, it made a big difference. What, what about you, Melissa? Yeah. Do, do, do you have, have you had experiences like that as a, as a teacher of writing? Oh, yes, all the time. I, I don't outline. <laughs> oh, you don't outline. Okay. I don't outline. Well, 
I guess I do. I, I'm very analog and I have a giant piece of butcher paper that I plaster around my office. Oh, wow. That's great. I love that. I and detail, that. you know, chapter by chapter what's going to happen, but it's that's not an a outline? traditional outline. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to see a picture of that sometime. <laughs> okay. You have, you have to give us a tour on our next uh, Wireside chat. I will. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I know that uh, that Faulkner used to kind of outline his books on the walls of his, uh, of his studio. Did? And in, in fact, you can go to his, uh, his house and see the the walls that he outlined with um uh i guess his last novel a fable um which uh, apparently i've never read it apparently is not that good so may, i don't know if outlining helped him or not <laughs> yeah. but he, it's preserved for posterity nonetheless so terry i also know i mean i don't know how much you can talk about this and if you can't just tell me to shut up but I think I think our students would be interested in hearing the kind of changes that that backyard starship. I mean, like just just walk us through like um, from the release to like the reception that it that it sure. received, and then what followed on from that, if you can, because I oh, think yeah. it's a, I think it's good for students to to see you know good things happen to writers sometimes. I I I. Yes, let me tell you, um, I, wrote, I wrote a few novels. I wrote four or five novels and they were overwrought and too detailed and I was trying to squeeze too much in and they didn't sell very many copies. And, um, and then I wrote a little series about a short witch in a tourist trap town and it started selling. And I, with my first significant royalties, I went out and bought my wife tires for her vehicle. <laughs> and just like it. So, and I went out and I was, I was like, tires, you know, it was this very dramatic unveiling of tires for a Chrysler. So, so that I consider that that's level two. First I was yeah. level one, then I was level two. Then a group of, a group of dental hygienists from Oregon who had a reading club, read my partner Jeff's stuff and my stuff and said, you know, you guys kind of write alike. And Jeff mm. caught, we, one thing led to another, Jeff and I talked, we're both Florida kids grew up in Florida. One thing leads to another. He says, I got this idea. And I said, oh yeah, I've, I've toyed with that idea, but I couldn't make it work. Not in this genre. We switched genres and it took off. So that's three and a half years ago. Yep. So to put it in context, you go from selling 400 books a month to 40,000, you know, you're getting, and things like this. And then we did very well with the Messenger series. The Messenger was, I love Mecca. I, you know, I'm, I'm 53 years old. I grew up, cut my teeth on early Japanese anime and Godzilla and things like that. I love Jet Jaguar and, and uh, all that and, you know, Transformers and things. Well, we just, I said, I'm going to write about comets and the orc cloud and giant robots. I mean, I'm writing what I want to read, effectively. And then the Messenger takes off. And then you're confronted from a business standpoint, you're confronted with two things. And I would like all our students and um, if you aren't in audiobooks, correct that today. And I'm gonna tell you, so to repeat, if you're not in audiobooks, correct it today because many of my friends are earning as much or more from their audiobooks as they are from print and ebook. And I don't say that lightly because that is a, a paradigm shift in media that we're seeing from younger p 
people consuming media through podcasts and audiobooks. Yep. And the logical next step is for us to go into audio. Now, I was an early adopter, and I was also just dumb enough to go and ask the narrator of the year. I was like, well, she can't be busy. I mean, so I said, <laughs> so I asked, I asked Julia Whalen to do a series for me, and to my utter surprise, she said yes. And then I asked Aaron Spencer, and Aaron Spencer said yes, and, and uh, Stefan Rudnicki and people like that. And now, you know, like we just hired Ray Porter a couple days ago. And it just is this inexorable climb where you invest in your audio and you scale up. So mm -hmm. to put it in perspective, I went from, I was happy if I had 10,000 and I put all my books in Kindle Unlimited. Um, if you had, if I had 10,000 pages, I was like, I have arrived. <laughs> you know, I just had that. I was like, honey, we're getting large frosties tonight. I mean, I, I was like, this is, we have arrived. <laughs> And then, you know, you, Jeff calls me and he says, hey, by the way, we just passed 30 million pages read, you know, wow. and you say, oh, this has a weight and a responsibility to it. And now, and to be very candid with you, I'm not a panicky person, but flying back from 20 books in Vegas, I had an existential crisis. I was on, on the Delta airplane and I was like, I've got to write 17 more of these. Mm -hmm. and, it had a weight to it. You know, I, I had a little moment where I was like, this is more pressure than I envisioned because right. now we have employees and I've said we would do well and I'll be as responsible as I can. And, you know, so prepare my guess, the long winded way of saying this is prepare for success from day one. Yeah, that's great. What would, I mean, that's I great advice. Question. Would you say 20 books is, oh, and it just disappeared here, I'll call it that. Oh, I have it. Would you say 20 books is the goal, but 20 to 50K has a big following on Facebook? Um, I like Craig Martell very much, and he has never said anything that isn't true. Let me say that. And let me, you know, I'm not a, let, let me, I want to make sure I word this in a kind manner. The vast majority of writing conferences are not worth your money and time. And the reason is because if you take four days to go and, and spend several thousand dollars and you're basically fellowshipping with other writers, is that the most effective use of your time? And are you just simply doing it to get that feather in your cap of saying, I've been to blank writers conference. Now I went to 20 books and I, was busy from the time I got there selling intellectual properties to people. For If nothing else, it's a chance to get face-to-face -face with everyone from Amazon, KDP, Audible. You're literally sitting having coffee with the people you've been emailing for eight months. Mm -hmm. And to me, that alone was worth the price of admission. So I do highly recommend it. I really don't recommend many writing conferences, but that's, a, that's the gold standard. Yep. For, that's the gold, is that the gold standard for self-publishing? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And not only that, but there are people that are there like Dave Chesson. If you don't know Dave, Dave's a great guy and his businesses, he helps people become successful. Mm -hmm. um, I, he was the first software I ever purchased, Publishers Rocket. It was great. Highly recommend it. Um, but the Kinga Gentetics was there from um, Publish Drive. That's another one. Um, and they're helping me like, you know, this year, Jeff and I are going into five different languages. We're, we're going into foreign rights and wow. we're doing things that we never thought were on the table, but we've got these people that act as catalysts and vectors who are both ethical and effective. And um, 
it, it seems to us that the time is right now. I'm, I'm intrigued by, by something that you said earlier, which was uh, prepare to succeed. Um, yep. What does, I mean, concretely, what does that mean? Like a student that's listening sure. to this right now and sure. me, I'm, I'm like prepared, preparing to publish all of my, my backlist, which I've, which I've wrested yep. away from the, the greedy hands of my publisher. And um, so, but so self-publishing is new to me. We've, we've chatted about this on the phone a little bit. Um, but, but um, so for all of us who are, who are interested in, in, you know, uh, embarking on this journey, what, what does it mean to prepare to succeed when you're just starting out? Okay. That, and first of all, let me play you, I want to pay you a compliment. The, the Lincolnstein is absolutely, yeah. that's something I wish I had written. As soon as I saw <laughs> it, I was like, I wish I had written that. It's well, that was one of those. That was one of those ideas that seems you, when you think of it, it seems so obvious that you can't believe nobody has done it yet. Yeah, so. yeah. I can't. I, I mean, kudos to you for because I would have assumed that <laughs> there you. were three versions of it. Right. That's fantastic. I did a um, search. I did a search on it on on Google <laughs> to make sure that I was okay, and the only thing I found was a guy named named Lincoln Lincoln Stein. Oh, that, okay. Okay. That's his name. So. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, um, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, not at all. So let's so let's talk concrete preparation. Um, if you can incorporate, number one, doesn't cost much on legal Zoom. Incorporate, and here's why: because twenty to thirty percent of your money stays in your pocket. Point two: if you don't have an attorney, get somebody who can get you a good contract in the event that somebody makes a run at you, and and says. I'd like to work with you in the following capacity. Okay, that's um, in the short term, almost immediately, there are five things that every writer should do. Number one, secure your domain name, terrymaggart.com or Paul Whitcover, yep. et cetera. Get your mail service going. The second thing you do before you put pen to paper is to get your mailing list going. And because your mailing list is critical. Yeah, explain, sure. explain why that's critical. Um, I'll give you an example. We have 84,000 people on our mailing list. So when I launch a book, like I launched, Backyard Starship went to 38 globally. I mean, uh, we would have had number one in sci-fi, but Dune was in the way. Some half yeah. named Herbert, <laughs> never heard of him, right? So, right. Um, but we are capable of launching. I tell everybody, your ceiling isn't rising, your floor is rising, is what's happening. We're effectively raising with our launches because we're launching to a mailing list. I use MailerLite as opposed to MailChimp. MailChimp was just sold for a billion dollars. I'm not wow. sure that I'm entirely on board with them. Uh, $12 billion, excuse me. Um, I'm not sure I'm on board with them because of their cost. MailerLite is more effective to me. Um, I do believe in the early adoption of tech. And one of the first things is your tech can be explored through your mailing list. Your mailing list is a tacit approval of the person on the other end who says, yes, Terry, you may email me regarding your new book. I can launch with orange flags across multiple um, categories in Amazon every time because of my mailing list alone. Yep. Now, and when you when you have your mailing list, when you establish your mailing list, which I assume is is like by your or at least one avenue of doing that is is through your website. People sign up when they come to your website. Yes, you, I know a lot of writers have like newsletters that they use to kind of keep their yeah. their mailing list going and expand it by offering like uh, extra extra content. Do you do you do something like that? 
I do, but let me give you a name, Katie Cross, K-A-T-I-E-C-R-O-S-S. Katie Cross is the, she has forgotten more about marketing than I will probably ever know. Um, Katie's a personal friend of mine. I was fortunate enough to meet her and I bought her a Reuben sandwich. We both like Reuben sandwiches. <laughs> and uh, we like dogs and Montana and all kinds of things. And Katie is, to me, the gold standard of what an onboarding process is through her mailer list. In other words, Katie doesn't send you one email. She sends you tailored emails that, mm -hmm. that meet your needs as in, in a, what is effectively a new relationship, a consumer relationship. And I know that I, I don't want people to think, wow, this guy's lizard brained and he's completely not. I am absolutely a writer. I am, you cut me open and there's a Godzilla fan and a guy that loves Anne McCaffrey more than oxygen. And I love dragons and it, that's me. But part of me was I had to come to grips with the idea that it's an absolute knife fight to succeed in Amazon. And in order to do it, you have to remain relevant. And one of the ways that you do that is by activating a portion of the ecosphere who will evangelize for you. And the mm -hmm. easiest way to do that is through your mailing list. Do you have a mailing list, Melissa? Um, sort of. <laughs> I, I'm terrible. I don't. I don't have one. I don't. I, I'm scared to set one up. I mean, I have a website, and uh, you know, people visit it, um, but I don't. I, I. It's awful. I'm. I feel like I'm letting them all slip through my fingers somehow. Yeah. Let me. Let me ask you a question, Paul, if I may, and for sure. Melissa too. Um, Melissa, do you have a web? Uh, do you have a website? I do. Do you have an onboarding process? I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, okay. Do you have like, if I go to your website, does it have a little hello bar that says, hi, would you like no. to be friends and get a, you should have one. And How do I why. get that? Okay. <laughs> so um, my web developer is a close personal friend of mine because I can't, I'm a human EMP. I can walk into a room and destroy tech. Um, <laughs> but, but you <laughs> make friends with a web developer who, your site should have an onboarding process, which is let's be friends. Yep. Do you want a free book? Do you want a free mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So, and the reason why I tell you this is because four words, you are worth it. I know that sounds a little bit, but Lincolnstein, are you going to charge for it? Well, it's my publisher's choice. I mean, congratulate <laughs> you're a professional. You absolutely <laughs> deserve that from, too many times we have been cowed by the marketplace to think that 99 cents is the proper price for books. And oh my goodness, I have to get, no, wrong. You worked a lot of hours to get to where you are and you're absolutely worth it. And I am confident when I say people will gravitate towards quality books and they will pay for them because they're worth it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I I have been meaning for quite some time to um, to, to get a mailing list going for, for my website. So I, I appreciate your encouragement and, yeah. and actually shaming. <laughs> well, I like to call it, it my shame, it's, it's shamespiration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's shame. You learn this, like you learn this from Southern women in particular, where they're like, that's such a bold choice of color for you. <laughs> you know, they say, they say things like that to you and you're like, well, I feel both uplifted and horrible about myself simultaneously. Right. And that is really, that is really the goal when you meet somebody who gives you good marketing advice to me is you should be confounded and energized simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So um, Mia, J Mia just posted something about, I, I, didn't, I apologize, I didn't see it. 
It says, does the onboarding process include socials or is it more geared at mailing lists, sign up, incentive reads like free books? Mine is more geared towards incentivizing and getting a relationship going with them because you can't eat Twitter likes. Sorry. Right. And let me, yeah. as long as we're on some questions, I'm in the chat as well. Let me ask a question from, from Juan who asked, how, how do you build a mailing list of thousands of people? Would the first step be to have a website and newsletter, a blog, et cetera, as the program is teaching? Yes, and, and, I'm gonna, and I'd like to give you some actionable information because there's a lot of vague, let me give you actionable intel about how I built this. Number one, uh, always at all your author events that you go to, always take a sign-up sheet and say mm -hmm. no spam. You right. make it absolutely clear. In fact, I would even buy a can of spam and say no, <laughs> and put a little thing on yeah. just to be, because it's memorable. <laughs> put it there, and then people are like, okay, you know, this, this is, um, I gave away chocolate and little flameless candles with my socials on it, was mm -hmm. what I started doing in the year 2015. I built it 10, 20, 100, 200 at a time. Now, I'm gonna introduce you to a dirty word. It's called sweepers. Um, you're going to meet a lot of people that say, well, you know what I did? I built up my mailing list to 35,000 and here's how I did it. Giving away $200 Amazon gift cards. Yeah. What you get are what are called sweepers. They're people that enter sweepstakes with a fake quasi fake mm. email address and all they care. And they're never going to buy your books. And that's right. okay because you know, it's money that you assume is gone, but the way to get viable sticky customers is through personal. Generally, if I meet you, like we're buddies, like, I mean, we're, you're my people. Um, the most people I've ever gained in one giveaway or anything like that was um, in the year 2017, I gave away an awkward sex scene. Where <laughs> all, you had to do, all you had to do was enter. You could enter your friend, your neighbor, somebody you hated. It didn't matter. And I said, I'm going to write an awkward sex scene with a, this, this character named Wolfric, who's a six foot seven vampire Viking. And I was like, it's going to get awkward. Yeah. I mean, it's going to get unbelievably <laughs> awkward. It's going to, you know, it's, and I, I had 2,500 entries by the end of the month. That is the, I, I had people that were like, yes. I mean, they were, I had people offer me money to write that scene, even though they lost. Right. And I said, I'll just do it. You know, I'll just do it for you anyway. And they're like, my sister-in-law is going to die. And I was like, yes, she will. So, um, but but that's the kind of out of the box marketing and thinking that I was sitting and I was bored and I was like, what would, you know, you know, what would be funny or what would be right. enjoyable, you know? So it, it didn't happen overnight. And we've harnessed the power of good books and, and social media and things like that. But the truth is, um, you know, start today with your mailing list. And if you don't gain anybody for six days, don't quit. You mm -hmm. know, don't, don't quit. It's okay. I, I, I remember the arrogance of telling my wife that I was going to sell 20,000 books, 20,000 copies of my first book. I sold 17 copies and I think three of them were to my sister. Yeah. So, so, so um, the, the concept of letting an idea run to its logical conclusion is so applicable with your mailing list um, because your mailing list is, I can't overstate the importance of it. It's almost as important as a good cover to put it in context yeah. for you. So let's, let's shift over to that. That seems like a good segue because a cover is a super important part of any self-publishing package. How, how do you 
how do you know? I mean, how do you how do you choose the right artist to do? Well, first of all, how do you choose the art an artist that you can trust who isn't a you know kind of scam artist or something? And how do you choose an artist whose work you know is going to resonate with uh, what you're trying to do in your book and complement it? Sure. Let's address if let's address that. I'm going to do the positive, and then I'm going to address you with the caveat. You know, emptor yep. moment. Um, point one: you can't see personality across the room. So bad covers ruin good books. We, that is a fact. Point two, 80, uh, between 70 and 80% of purchases of eBooks are made from a thumbnail on a phone. Right. If your cover is too complex or too nuanced or- Or, or too busy anything, or something or too like busy, that. Right? Yeah, busy, that's another one where you're like, I've got critical information. No, you don't, you have a mess. Also, look, I like Gothic font. I went through my heavy metal experience in the early 80s. I've survived it. That doesn't mean that I want Gothic font. It, I don't want somebody thinking it's a German bratwurst recipe from 1880 on the cover of my book. It has to be readable. It has to be clean, readable, and effective in terms of what my genre is. Um, it's got to, you know, I like the color yellow, but does a bright yellow color really get mm -hmm. across the idea? You know, so here's right. the other thing. Go look at the top 100 and see what is appealing in terms of color design and things. You don't have to be an artist. You just have to be a consumer. Yeah. That's all. Um, now, the negative portion of this is, this isn't even a negative portion, but believe me, if somebody's a bad actor in this industry, somebody on the K-boards has complained about it. <laughs> so go to the K-boards and look up, there's a thread that's called Predators and Editors. Yep. And type their name in, and boy, I'll bet you they are right in there, and you're going to get a detailed account of how so, they were bad. So tell, tell our student, what do you mean by, by K-boards for, for, for the benefit of our students? Uh, the K-boards are a, a chat, you know, social media conglomerate for, um, if you just look up the K-boards, Lots of working authors are in there. Um, okay. It's a, you know, it's, it's a repository of information in particular about bad publishers. You know, the vanity publishers who keep popping yep. up like mushrooms, they're all in there. Um, bad, you know, people that say, I'm going to promote your book for $7. You know, that kind of, we all see, I get 20 of those a week. And there are a lot of them are actually the same person. So, <laughs> yeah. so. No, it's, um, it's. It can be bad out there. I mean, no, no doubt about it. So sure. I, I really appreciate your um, uh, giving our, our students information to avoid that, that, uh, you know, so much wisdom in this, in this industry is unnecessarily earned by making mistakes. Uh, so oh, it's, if yeah. we can help that, students avoid those mistakes, that's great. I'm not, I, I, I have a saying about myself. I'm not overly bright, but I don't make the same mistake twice. That's, that's a quality that I have. I'm good with animals and I'm not, and I don't make the same mistake twice. And, um, you know, we're thirsty for success. If somebody comes to you and says, I need your story to be told, you're like, yes, I've thought that all these years, you know, and it resonates with you in your bones because you think, oh, and we throw good sense out the window because it is giving us exactly what we want. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I've, I've worked as, you know, in many different positions in the publishing world. Um, I've been an editor, so I've been on both sides of the equation. 
When it comes to dealing with writers, what I found as an editor working on behalf of a publisher was that writers were on the whole incredibly cynical in, in that they were always looking out for how is my publisher going to take advantage of me? I have to protect my, my um, you know, intellectual property and everything, which is, those are fine qualities to have. But at the same time, it would be like, I'm avoiding the, the you know, rapacious grasp of my publisher by signing on with this, you know, crazy, you know, charlatan who, who's yeah. promising them the moon. Um, so writers have, writers have like, they're, it's a Jekyll and Hyde thing for, for many writers. You know, they're, they're incredibly yeah. cynical, but also unbelievably naive. Oh, yeah. And this, so, this circles back to the idea of us as writers. Um, circles back to the concept of working with people, good people who you trust. That's, that's, I mean, if you can find that, why would you ever give it up? I have a question. I have two questions, actually. Sure. Terry, where do you find your cover artists? Is there a particular place? Yes. Um, I went to Deviant Art in the year 2013. Okay. Let me, this is my journey. I went to Deviant Art in the year 2013 and, um, and found Amalia Cicilescu, who is from Romania, and we were good friends. She's a great friend and believed in me, and I believed in her, you know, that kind of thing, and we grew together. But then I found, uh, like, I'll give you two examples of people that are, two or three examples of people that are just, they're really what a cover artist should be. Um, Comber Designs, Q-A-M-B-E-R, it's um, Naj Comber. She is amazing. I can't say enough good things about her. She's over in uh, Bahrain. Um, and her sister, Nada, works with her. The team is wonderful. They have produced eight or nine of my covers, but they also do formatting, which, as Paul and I have had this, your, the interior of your book should be pretty. It should be interesting and visually. And I preach with my students all the time about the use of negative space and good blocking you know, all the time. So it's visually appealing. Um, Comber Designs, another one, um, Melissa at The Illustrated Author. She's wonderful. And she has an insight where she's always vaguely ahead of the curve. You know, like if this year we're going to do in romance, we're doing vector drawings. Next year, we might go back to oil dabs. I don't know. But, you know, there's always something, it, it, it stands you in good stead to be slightly ahead of the curve. Um, and then Christian Bentulan, B-E-N-T-U-L-A-N. Christian is a wonderful dude who really understands drama, light, and fantasy. I think those are his strong suits. Um, and when I have a friend who's like, I'm getting into publishing, I'm like, well, let's go to the gold standards, these three. You know, let's go right there and start. So those are three that I recommend, what I would call a curated list of people who I find to be quality, professional, responsive, and priced within the market. Thank and, you. And, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, and Melissa, you had, you had one more question. Well, it's actually Juan's yes. question. Juan okay. asks, should the thematic significance of the book have any bearing on the design, color, font, etc., on the cover? Only up, in, that's an excellent question. Um, let me say that we are guilty in the writing industry, in the publishing industry, I think, of overthinking things. And the example that I will give you is go look at Twilight. <laughs> go look at the uh, two hands with an apple. 
I don't know if she ate an apple in Twilight. I don't care. All I know is that it's iconic and it's absolutely the right cover for the right time. So once again, uh, Paul used a great term, busy. You don't want a cover that's busy. You want a cover that conveys one or two ideas at most um, and gets that across and then leave and leave the rest. Don't overtell the story, in other mm -hmm. words. So, um, and thematic elements, you know, it gets a little, we get a little roamy when we, like if you have a, a book that's about justice, justice is a fairly, it's, we know what it means, but it's a little bit vague. So do you put something that's on the nose as scales, the scales of justice, or do you put, you know, a hand holding a sword or what do you do? When you start to try to do concepts, I think that's where things get a little bit more challenging. And I'll say this, go look at my covers, go look at everybody's covers, like Backyard Starship, it's a guy in a starship. And that also was why I named it that. I mean, because I don't want to overcomplicate and make things difficult for my readers. Right. That's a great title though, I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, it took me 10 seconds. 10 seconds of incredibly, <laughs> incredible hard work. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that don't, don't, don't sell yourself short. That's, that is work. I mean, it's a gift to be able to come up with, with good title. I'm bad. I'm very bad at titles. I, 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 most of my novels have been, um, you know, they're accepted, but the title is rejected. And then I have to come up with it with a different title. And all, and I have to say every title, when they force me to do that, I do come up with a better title. So they're, they're, sure. they're right. My initial titles are, are, are all awful. <laughs> I learned that. I retitled my first five novels mm -hmm. because I was, I was too cute. I was getting yeah. too cute. I was like, I was like, but they don't need to understand my depth. <laughs> oh, they don't need to understand my depth. There was, you know, there was naked people and vampires and <laughs> Nazis for crying out loud. It's not like I was reinventing Hemingway. No. <laughs> I, I have to say, I would probably buy a book that was called Naked People, Vampires, and Nazis. <laughs> sure. I, I, was, I worked at Blockbuster. That fits right in with our Labad yeah. section. Uh, perfect. So, so do we have uh, other questions from our uh, viewing audience? There is another uh, one in the chat from Bethany. Okay. Um, Bethany is asking if you could elaborate more on how you landed on a final title. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, yes. I am a huge fan. I collect vintage sci-fi. I'm gonna contradict. Let me give you a list uh, example from history. Um, the simpler the title, the more memorable it tends to be for me. Um, you know, Dragonflight by Anne McCaffrey, The White Dragon by Anne McCaffrey. You know, Anne McCaffrey is my favorite writer, but, so, but she did almost everything right with that entire world. And it's simply because I, Dragonflight, there's dragons. I love dragons. Flying, I want to fly. Boom, that's it. So Backyard Starship was, you know, he is gifted a starship from his grandfather in a barn in Iowa. It's in his backyard. And I like the, I say overtelling, don't overtell the story. I like the concept of you want people to walk close enough to go, what's, what's this all about? And get close enough that you go and you bring them the rest of the way with the cover art. 
that's you're bringing them in somewhat with the title and the font mm -hmm. and the cover art. They're going to look at it and go, okay, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. What about the cover copy? Do you feel that that is important in selling, in selling a book? Do you write your own cover copy? I wish I didn't because there are a few <laughs> things that make me nervous. I mean, I'm, I'm, a real, I'm a beach rat. I'm relatively laid back, but uh, you want to see me in flop sweats? Just say, hey, Terry, I need a blurb by tomorrow. <laughs> because, I mean, that is, not only do you have to write a blurb, you know, which is taking 131,000 words and putting it in 206, but then you have to come up with three versions of the blurb because you have to have shorter and shorter versions for the three different mm -hmm. ad vectors. And then the last thing is, and this is something I, I'm okay at, but taglines. I yeah. highly recommend taglines. And I'll give you an example. I wrote that Halfway Witchy series. Come for the waffles, stay for the magic. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. That's, that's it. You, that is exactly what I wanted to say about that series. And it says everything that that series wants you to know. So how, so how, get long, your tagline. Did, how long did it take you to make, to get that tagline? 10 seconds. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep, sometimes, some, I mean, one of my, one of my jobs in the publishing industry has, has been a freelance copywriter and oh. I definitely had to write, um, you know, some books wanted a tagline, some didn't. Uh, you had to, you had to be able to come up with them very quickly. And and writing writing cover copy is definitely like somebody is saying, like Caleb is saying, it is an art form unto itself for sure. It is. It it is. You're you're effectively transitioning. You're changing hats and transitioning from the concept of author to ad person. And and yeah. you know, uh, is it Sugarman? Uh, Sugarman wrote the great ad copy book. It's just oh, like I don't the, know the that. Bible. It's a wonderful book. It was written, it's decades old, but it just, it still resonates um, about how to have a call to action in mm -hmm. your, yeah, uh, highly recommend it. So, but the other thing is this, is this is my 53rd title. Um, at this wow. point, I know who I am and I know my limitations and my flaws and I know my strengths. And so I play to those and within that playground, mm -hmm. I'm okay at, we're okay now. We're we're like, we understand what this series is about. Now we just have to do it sixteen more times. Right. <laughs> so. Well, so so I mean, one thing that's interesting about your career is like how you know you began small, you kind of scaffolded it up in a in a logical manner, um, building on your successes. So what is next? What's next for for Terry Maggard and and your company? Where do you go for from here? For us, the next thing is to, uh, we, we have a representative at, at Amazon, but we also have an attorney, we have an attorney in Beverly Hills, who I think is wonderful. She's smart, ethical, everything. She's everything I want in a business partner. And, um, and we also have a business manager who we've, who has opened up our possibilities. You know, he started asking uncomfortable questions two years ago. He said, hey, what are you guys going to do when they want to make a movie? Mm -hmm. What are you guys going to do if they want to make a, a Netflix? And, that's, and those are questions that you want to hope are true. But at the same time, you have to be practical and think, okay, I just need to keep my head down and tight. But that's not true. Right. Um, well, that, go, that, that falls into what you mentioned earlier about prepare for success. Yep. Absolutely. And, and these are, you know, I practiced asking my wife to marry me. Right. So I think you should practice. <laughs> 
um, at least have some a dry run, so to speak, of, yeah. of when somebody comes to you and says, hey, Paul, this is what we you saw, you know, this film, this is what we'd like to do with your book. And I just think that it doesn't hurt you to have that in your quiver because if, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. There are, I, I read books and I think this should be, why isn't this a movie? Right, you know, right. I think that about once a week because I read three or four books a week. And, um, and so I think preparing for success also means preparing for the realities of a digital marketplace in which you're just not eBooks and audio, but you're going to be, I'll give you an example, gaming. We're prepared yeah. for gaming because the messenger is built for gaming. Okay. You know, yeah. That's another and thing I, that we prepared for. And I can tell, I can tell you're a gamer yourself because I can, I can just from reading uh, backyard starship, I can see, you know, gaming elements in it. That's part of what makes it fun. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm 53 and Jeff is 38. And uh, I think I told you this, Paul, but this really sums up our relationship. I t he said, pitch me on the messenger. You know, like I was like, hey, I got an idea for our next series. So I said, okay, it's Heechee Rendezvous. You know, it's Paul Anderson, the Heechee saga in the Oort cloud with Jet Jaguar. And uh -huh. he goes, I don't understand what any of those things are, <laughs> but what I see is Mass Effect meets Gundam. Okay. And I said, ding, ding, ding. That's yeah. exactly it. So yeah. uh, now we're, you know, I came from a tabletop and Atari 2600 tradition of gaming. Jeff comes from, he, he was a gamer who happened to also serve in the Air Force. And so he's like a true, you know, he's a deep, deep cut gamer. Yeah. So uh, between the two of us, you know, gaming right. references in Gen X are going to be heavy. <laughs> so let me go back to a, uh, a question in the chat, because I think this is a, sure. a useful question for everyone to answer here. Uh, this again from Juan. If a writer has not published yet, are vanity publishing companies a viable option? If not, what are the alternatives? I've looked Absolutely at some not. companies. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> Absolutely not. Stop right. Full stop. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Let me, I, I, Juan, I want to give you an example of, I'm not going to say her name, but a, a friend of mine was asked for $7,200 to publish a Christian themed self-help women's book that was about 53,000 words. Um, so I told her I would prep it and get everything ready for free. And she could use one of our in-house cover artists. We would do something. And I said, just promise me that you will lose their number and never allow them in your life again. So, and, and Juan brings up, you know, not to be, I don't mean to be glib and, and give a truncated answer because it's a viable question with what do you do? Okay, if vanity publishers aren't on, aren't a possibility, what do you do? Well, the truth is you publish it yourself. And, and, and there are any number of people who can walk you through for free, walk you through this process. But I am so leery of seeing people become financially entangled with vampiric presences in our industry. And there is no, there is no example I can give you of a good vanity publisher. And I say that in all sincerity. I, I, I would have to agree with that. And it's, you know, one of the, one of the heartbreaking things, you know, being in a, being in a, uh, in a program like this, you get to see the successes of your students. And that's so um, thrilling. 
and inspiring. To, I've had a number of students go on to, to publish, um, you know, to either self-publish their work or, or find an agent and a publisher. Um, but I've also had some students who made, made mistakes and they were, they were eager and they um, maybe too eager and they, they wound up, um, they wound up doing something that they regretted um, because they were so eager and, you know, they learned the hard way. Yeah. And let me give you to be quick, but don't hurry. I think that that's um, Vince Lombardi. And also um, one of them, one <laughs> of the, like Yogi Berra. It, it, it is, uh, and then a very <laughs> famous from, uh, from uh, tactical operations is, smooth is slow, uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Mm -hmm. And the inertia that you build in your process from not making mistakes is better than hurrying. And I can't overstate that. And the other thing is, I hate to see the emotional detritus of people mm -hmm. who have, just use this as an example. If you ever think, if you ever have the urge to use a vanity publisher, think of the worst idea you can possibly think of. <laughs> um, I, I'll just, Alcoholic charter boat captain inherits fortune from Swedish meatball manufacturer. <laughs> Write it up as a blurb and send it in, and I guarantee you they're like, this story has to be told. Right. That, that tells you all you need to know. I have a quick question from one of my students earlier today. Is a vanity publisher the same as a hybrid press? No. Uh, excellent question. And but let me tell you, hybrid publishers, vanity publishers try to create the mythology that they're a hybrid publisher. They try to intentionally mask their actual nature. Here's how you know it's not, it's as soon as somebody puts their hand out for money, it's a vanity publisher, period. Hybrid publishers, hybrid means like, let's say, Melissa, you published, you have a successful career from 1999 to 2006, where you published 12 novels, and now you've decided to begin self-publishing. You're a hybrid author. A hybrid publisher is somebody who takes on that kind of, that side of it. And, and uh, but hybrid publishers, very often when you scratch them and get the paint off, you find a vanity publisher underneath. That, that's been my experience too, unfortunately. Is there any hybrid out there that doesn't ask for money up front? I don't know. I wouldn't work with them. I can't I think of a single one. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it is. I mean, if you're if you're self-publishing, you're obviously responsible for paying for a lot of, you know, a lot of the the well, just about everything, really. So, with a hybrid publisher, a trustworthy one, I assume that you would be. You would be paying them to do what you would be paying your. For, for yourself, right. um, Correct. but again, I'm 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 very skeptical about operations like that. Um, I'm not saying they can't be legit, but I would have I would have to do some serious due diligence. But you're do saying that a reputable hybrid would charge you for copy editing, cover design, formatting, all the things that you would spend time and money doing yourself. Well, because a regular public. Well, Exactly. And I, I would be again. I'm. I, I would be super skeptical of it. Mm -hmm. But I'm not. I'm just saying that I wouldn't. I wouldn't automatically assume that that couldn't be true because I think there are some. Like Jane Friedman talks about. Yeah. I don't have the names offhand, but I yeah. know she talks about 
some legitimate hybrid publishers. Yeah. Like yeah, I, I, yeah. Jane's, by the way, Jane Friedman, if you don't, if Jane and I, I was keynoting out in Roanoke a few years ago and Jane was there with, and Jane is wonderful and, and knows, Jane is a wonderful, genuine, intelligent source for publication on, across the board. I, I think a lot of her, uh, her ethics too, like she, you know, she'll tell you if she sees something is kind of, but the other thing to consider, hybrid publishers, consider this, if you buy pancake mix and it says on the back of it, just add eggs, milk, vanilla, salt, hmm. and baking powder. <laughs> right. You know, is that, that's not, that's good. you know, so I always say, um, you know, and the other thing is you can, you can torpedo most of their aspirations for lightening your wallet. If you ask them one simple question, which is, Hey, who have you published? Right. Because if you believe me, if they're a legitimate publisher, they're going to say, Oh yeah, here's our back catalog. This is who we published, by the way, take a look at these names and they're proud of it. Mm -hmm. and, and that to me is if they're invasive at all, well, we keep client privilege. No, no. Congratulations. Yeah. Moving on. Right. Yep. Um, folks, we have, we have pretty much reached the end of our, of our uh, wireside chat for this week or for this month, rather. I want to thank everyone for, for coming. I want to especially thank uh, Terry for uh, sharing his wisdom. Um, it's just real thrilled to talk with you and Melissa, it's always great to see you. Um, I'm looking forward to our next one. Uh, we're, I guess we're, uh, the holiday is coming up, so I hope everyone has a great holiday. Are, are, are you breaking out the T-Rex costume, Melissa, for, for uh, yes. the holiday? You'll be seeing this on TikTok. <laughs> oh, really? You're, I, I want to follow you on TikTok. Please do. <laughs> okay. All right. What's, what's, your, what's your TikTok I handle? think it's Melissa M. Hart. Yeah. All right. <laughs> it's not <All> very right. <laughs> academic. <laughs> well, I, I'm thank God for that. <laughs> Great so stuff, Terry. Thank you. Yeah, thank thanks you a lot, much. everybody. And we will see you next time, I hope. Okay. Cheers. Take care, everybody. Cheers. Bye.